Long hours, small teams, uninspiring content. Marketing for a startup is hard work, but it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help you grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing, and support all together so you can increase leads, fast-track deals, smooth out support, and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. Plus, they have a constantly evolving collection of resources to help startups scale. HubSpot also offers discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform, and not the kind of discounts that barely make a dent. I'm talking about meaningful savings of up to 90%. So if you're ready to crush your marketing, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit HubSpot.com startups. One of the things that I tell everybody who asks me about a good strategy to build a Twitter audience is to completely forget writing tweets, standalone tweets, and to focus 100% on engaging with other people where they're already having a conversation. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. I have to say, I really felt the love last week with episode number 100. So many listeners reached out to congratulate me and thank me. It was really something, and not a single troll made fun of my on-the-spot singing of country music, so I'm glad for that as well. I also saw some new ratings and reviews on Spotify, so thank you to whoever took the time to leave a rating or review. And if you haven't done so yet, please do. I'm trying to get to 250 reviews on Apple Podcasts and 100 ratings on Spotify. So no matter which phone you use, you can make a difference. I've also mentioned over the last few weeks that I'm working towards both video for the podcast as well as some creative elements swag. So I wanted to put this out there. If you're a graphic designer, an animator, a clothing designer, reach out to me. I have a couple of projects that I would love some help with. You can contact me on the website, creativeelements.fm, or send me an email, j at creativeelements.fm. This week, we're back to interviewing other great creators, and today I'm interviewing a bootstrapped software founder turned creator who has made a lot of waves by building in public. His name is Arvid Call, and a few years ago, Arvid was putting his software engineering training to use by building a platform called Feedback Panda a platform that made it much easier and faster for teachers to provide feedback to their students. We solved a problem that every single teacher that was teaching for that school had. It was a critical problem. It was a current problem. Everybody had that at the same time. It was repeating. People had that every day. It was just a perfect solution to a very, very critical problem that I found, or that we found, by just watching us work. That's Arvid. His partner, Danielle, was an English-as-a-second-language teacher, and he noticed her spending a lot of time doing administrative work outside of the classroom. So in an effort to spend more time with Danielle and to make her life easier, he decided to build some software as a side project. We started in 2017. Uh, in July, I think, is when we released it. Early 2018 is when we went full-time on it, and we sold it in July-ish, end of July 2019. I think I built the whole thing in, in a week or so, the first prototype. Wow. Well, you know, like software engineer for a decade, you, you kind of, you learn how to build things fast. So not only did Arvid build the software project in an incredibly short amount of time, but they even sold the company after just about two years. And in those two years of building the platform, Arvid and Danielle attracted nearly 6,000 teachers to the platform, generating more than $50,000 in revenue per month. That's an incredible business. But for two founders who were running everything themselves, it was also a lot on their shoulders. I think, honestly, I was at a point, I was really close to burnout. I was probably mid-burnout thinking that I was close to burnout. You know how it is. Like, you always have this <laughs> perception of, oh, I'm perfectly fine. And, like, the fire is burning around you. But yeah, the, I, we sold for many reasons. Diversification was one of them. And me not being really able to deal with this anymore was another. Because I was the only, we were two, only two people. We never hired during those two years. We had five and a half thousand customers. But it was just two people running the business. Kind of stressful, if you ask me. In retrospect, you know, a lot of things I should have done different, but 
I was at a point where I really wanted to sell, and then we sold, then we went on a vacation, and then I got bored, and I started writing. Well, and here I am. <laughs> Today, Arvid is focused on being a solo creator. He has nearly 65,000 followers on Twitter, which he's gained almost entirely in the last couple of years. That's come on the back of writing two books, The Embedded Entrepreneur and Zero to Sold. He also has a podcast called The Bootstrapped Founder and a new course on building your following on Twitter, which is called, appropriately, Find Your Following, a course that I've personally taken and highly recommend. I actually have a discounted link in the show notes for listeners of the show to save 10%. So in this episode, we talk about the start of Feedback Panda, a speaking opportunity that opened up a new world for Arvid, the transition from founder to creator, his unconventional approach to Twitter, the difference between creating a course versus creating a book, and why he's on a personal mission of empowerment. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter at jklaus or on Instagram at creativeelements.fm. Tag me, say hello, let me know that you're listening. And now let's talk with Arvid. Danielle was teaching English online because she said she needed a job. She, she had like a, a little accident and she, she couldn't walk well. And uh, that meant she couldn't leave the house. And she's an, a trained opera singer, right? So she really needs to go places to perform. And she couldn't do anything. So she was kind of stuck at home. And that was before the pandemic. We're talking 2017 here, where people were stuck at home involuntarily. And voluntarily, I mean, we're all kind of stuck at home involuntarily. But you know what I'm saying. Like She couldn't leave home. And she found a job teaching English online to Chinese kids like over the internet. And it was really cool. She could teach for hours and hours in a day. And she'd be paid hourly and was actually quite nice. But then there was this part of her job that required her to fill out student feedback for the parents to read, right? You, you know, like parents generally want to know what their kids are doing and Chinese parents particularly want to know what their kids are doing because it's just a super cutthroat competitive landscape there and learning English at an early age. Danielle had students like from the age of four to six starting to immerse themselves in the English language without having any training. It's pretty funny to watch her just like sing and dance in front of a computer. But that <laughs> that cost her a lot of time. Like writing these reports costs her an hour, sometimes two hours in addition to already having taught for 10 hours in a day. And I was I was at home, I was, I was working half remotely, half uh, presence uh, for a German software company. I, I was a software engineer at the time. And I came home, she was still doing the thing. She was doing the thing without actually teaching. So she wasn't really paid for those two hours of additional work, but she had to do it to get paid for the 10 hours she taught before. It was frustrating. And I saw her build some kind of system, the copy and pasting things so she could reuse it because she was teaching the same lessons over and over to different kids and having her own system, some Word documents, some Excel documents, and some of the, her fellow teachers had started like a Google sheet to deal with this. And then I just talked to her at some point and said, hey, let, let, let's look into a solution. And then she found out a couple things about a software that we could use and together we built a prototype for her. She started using it. It immediately cut those two hours down to five minutes because it was all automated, copy and paste, like template replacement stuff. I'm a software engineer. I love building these kind of things. And then since I had been building software as a service platforms for many years at that point, I had built her solution to quickly be able to be extended to a whole community of people, had like Stripe integration for charging people money, had like Auth0 integration for people to log in with their Facebook and stuff. It was all there. We turned it on. We responded to some comments that people had in a Facebook group. Those teachers were all congregating in gigantic Facebook groups, helping each other, dealing with all the stress of their work. And people signed up and it went from there. Like it went, it went so fast that... I hadn't even exchanged the, the test keys, the test uh, login data for our Stripe account to the real production stuff. People wanted to subscribe and couldn't because it was still trying to use the test data. It was awesome. What year did that go public so that customers could actually start using it, not just your wife? That was uh, 2017. But uh, I, in, in writing a book about this whole thing, because once we sold the company two years later, I had nothing to do and I started writing a book. I figured out that one of the things that allowed me to do this in a week was just really reusing the same technology that I had been using for many years, both personally and in the job that I was currently in. Because Feedback Panda started as a moonlighting, as a side project, right? I, I had a full-time position, Danielle had a full-time job, and then I built the thing and late at night and over the weekend, and it just uh, kind of turned into the software project that we kept running as a side project until it was making a five-figure monthly recurring revenue 
situation so that we could easily quit our jobs and get into the same kind of financial compensation without having to yeah kind of cut down our quality of life so we waited for pretty much half a year even though it was already profitable to quit our jobs so yeah it, it was so fast that i could build this because i had this immediate feedback cycle with danielle i would build something she would immediately use it and i was using the exact same tech stack that i was using at work which is all open source right nobody's using um kind of proprietary technology anymore it's all i don't know python or, or ruby or something so everybody can use this for side projects as well and i was legally allowed to build side projects which is very important for software engineers because some businesses don't allow for anything uh, in a side project or if you build something it belongs to the business you're working for so i made sure i could actually do this had an agreement with the company i was working for but yeah that was fairly quick and then we just continued to iterate on the product like four years until we sold it really because danielle was always still a little bit of a teacher she may have quit a job but she was still trying to teach every now and then and we always were in contact with the teachers so we always had our yeah we were doing the dog fooding thing right where you eat your own dog food and we certainly did that for as long as we could well, to, just to kind of close the loop, the, the timeline is fascinating to me because two years is incredible for a SaaS company from development oh, yeah. to six months in, you were doing five figures of recurring revenue. Where were things when you sold it two years later? So we had a monthly recurring revenue of just around $55,000 uh, yeah, in MRR. That was with five and a half thousand customers you can kind of kind of guess what the the monthly fee was there but that that was where we sold and that allowed us to have what i am allowed to say is a life-changing exit which definitely changed my life because i'm sitting here in my basement and i'm my own boss and i've been doing this for the last couple of years so it uh, it's, it's been really nice it allowed us to do a lot of things that we wanted to do we, we moved from europe we, we were in berlin at the time which was awesome like if you if you want to build something that bridges the north america American teacher population with the Chinese children, like learner population. It's wonderful to be geographically right in the middle, right? That was cool. Like middle of Europe, you had the, the late Chinese day, the early American day. You had just, it was a great, um, great opportunity for us being at the right place, quite literally at the right time. And then we moved from, from there to Canada where I am calling from today like uh, Danielle's family is Canadian and she just uh, put me in a little suitcase and brought me here and now we live here in the, the countryside which is wonderful here in Ontario so that changed we we now have our own place and we do what we want to do really we have our own little uh, things I do I'm, I'm a writer I'm a course creator I guess I'm a creator that's kind of, you know, what what they call it now. You're wearing and, a uh, ConvertKit shirt. You're a creator. Yes. Teach everything you know. It's one of my my finest shirts. And I, I, I really love it because I, I think this is exactly what I was meant to do always. And just recently found out that I can or should, you know, like we, we all have so much to share, but so many inhibitions like the, the voice in our heads, the voices in our heads that are telling us that why us? you know, like the, the imposter syndrome voices and the, oh, I'm not qualified enough voices and whatever kind of weird voices that are not us, but we think they are, are going on in our heads. And yeah, ever since I found that on a shirt, it's like, oh yeah, the shirt is telling me to do it. Well, I'm going to wear the shirt. So, you know, <laughs> and, and then it really helps. I use that in my course too, because I feel it's just such a nice message to give people to teach everything you know. It might not be much, but it's definitely more than what some other people know. Right? And it's probably way more than you think it is because we all have our unique uh, experiences and they all intersect in super interesting ways that other people have never thought about. So yeah, teaching is what I'm doing. Danielle is, uh, is a musician. She's going back into her musician roots, which is also awesome that building a SaaS, just, you know, a little, little SaaS on the side and then selling it. And then, you know, you can go back to what you wanted to do with your life in the first place. It's just a wonderful opportunity. And it was great fun. I learned a lot and I share as much as I can from that experience. And I really appreciate that, that the, the opportunities that I get like today, being able to talk to you about this. And knowing that there's probably a couple people listening to this, that's just wonderful because, you know, I can motivate people. I can give them the little tiny little boost that they might need to get started. And that's just all I want to do in my life. Well, talk to me about this transition, because this is this is where you came into my world was when I saw you doing the, the teaching, the building in public, the writing. And it seems like you made a pretty seamless transition from selling this company and building SaaS to now doing this online creator thing. And part of me wonders, did you wrestle at all with 
letting go of the identity of I'm a SaaS founder and moving into this new identity. Cause that's hard for a lot of people who build a company and that's like all they know and all they do for a couple of years to now transition into a different state of being. That's a very interesting question because I've, I've thought about this a lot, particularly after we, we sold the business. I, I figured out that, hmm, I found a lot of purpose in helping people, right? And uh, because and not only was I doing the technical side of Feedback Panda, building the whole product, um, that, that was fun. That was kind of my, my, my trained skill, the skill that I had acquired over building software in multiple languages for multiple companies of varying like stages of funding and you know product market fit or whatever. I've been doing this since like, 2005 or something professionally as a software engineer. But that was my technical skill. What I what I found was much more interesting to me though was helping people like realize their own ambition because in in our feedback panda world we were only two people so we had to share everything right we had to do everything together we we kind of tried to split responsibilities between us Danielle was the CEO she led the company she led the design she led the 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 customer outreach and understanding the customer customer success and stuff but for customer service helping them with their actual problems with the product that was my job too we kind of split that but most of the time I would be the first person to to talk to people. And I discovered to my surprise that as a self-classifying introvert, I really enjoyed talking to people. Because the moment there's a purpose, the moment you can help them with something, you're not just like chatting about the weather or, you know, like trying to get to network or something. It wasn't really about that. It was about solving their immediate issue with something that I could help them with. And that was enjoyable. I really, really like that. And that was the thing that I missed most. It wasn't the building part. It wasn't like um, maintaining a software product by myself. That was actually a stressful burnout causing situation that I had there. But and talking to people, having them chat about their day because they were either frustrated or just happy to talk or whatever it was, that was awesome. And I went into a conversation where they had a problem and we left the conversation. They didn't have that problem anymore. Great feeling, helping people, sometimes just helping them help themselves figure out how to do things, that, that was where I found my love for what I now call empowerment. Because that's really all I'm trying to do is to help people help themselves. Right? With the books I write, the course I, I, I um, what do you say, create? So I'm, I'm still trying yeah, to figure out. Yeah, the course I made, I recorded in my basement. I, I want to give people the opportunity to figure something out and then do stuff themselves. That is that I figured that out at that point that this is actually what I liked. The whole my whole life I was under the impression that I was really, really good at solving technical problems. But that was just like the tool that I was trained to use. And now I put found something to actually put it to use for. After a quick break, Arvid and I talk about the speaking opportunity that put him on the path to becoming an online creator. And later Arvid shares his unconventional strategy for finding your following. So stick around. And we'll be right back. D2C Pod, hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. D2C Pod is a podcast about all things direct to consumer. Ramon and Blaine cover everything for starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. They talk with founders, marketers, and creators and cover topics like brand building, social media, influencer marketing, website conversion, paid media, consumer trends, email marketing, and more. So if you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, listen to DTC Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You may or may not know that I have a bit of a domain buying obsession. Whether it's a new project idea or domains related to my existing projects, I'm buying them all. I have creatorscience.tv, creatorscience.fm. So let me tell you about my newest purchase. It's jklaus.bio. Connection with your audience is everything. We make all this content and then we want to direct our audience somewhere. Well, a great new option is with a .bio domain. Instead of some long link tree or third-party URL that people can't understand and it's hard to say out loud, using your .bio domain for your link in bio lets you manage all your links in one spot with a custom domain that tells people exactly who you are. It's short, it's memorable, it's professional. Your .bio domain name is your way to share yourself with the world. And right now, you can get your own .bio domain name for less than $3 at Porkbun. Yes, it's a real website and a real registrar. Just visit porkbun.com slash creator. That's P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com slash creator. Welcome back to my conversation with Arvid Call. We've talked a lot so far about the sale of Arvid's business, Feedback Panda, and the financial impact it had on his life. But besides that financial impact, 
It also opened the door to a speaking opportunity that put Arvid on an entirely new path. The company we sold to is, is called SureSwift Capital, and they are a private equity company oh, that has acquired. I know them. Yeah, love those well, guys. Of course you do. Like they are all over our industry, right? They, they, they. Uh, there's a lot of founders that sold to them. Like Tyler Tringus is one of them. Moritz Dousinger is one of them. And there's a, there's a. The, the moment we sold to them. We, we talked to all these people to do our own due diligence on the people that were going to be acquired by, and they had like glowing reviews that sounded very sincere. And then we, we actually went into the process with them and the due diligence that they did on us. Everything was wonderful. We had a really, really good time. Um, it wasn't complicated. There were no like hiccups. Our, our lawyer said that uh, the letter of intent and even the, the purchasing agreement that they sent us was the most boring document he ever read, which for an M&A lawyer is probably the biggest thumbs up you can get, right? Because there was no hidden trap doors. There was nothing. It was really good. And I'm not sponsored to say this. It was really just my experience with them. <laughs> and that experience has extended to today. And, and they also uh, sponsored MicroConf Europe, the conference. That's why I'm saying this. They were a sponsor there and they asked us, well, don't you want to come to the conference? And then at some point, they uh, the conference itself was asking for guest speakers if anybody wanted to spend like 10 minutes on stage, talk about whatever they, they wanted to talk about. And we submitted our little talk about how we sold Feedback Panda and what we did to make it sellable. And then we got on stage. So we got voted in by the, the visitors or the people who wanted to wanted us to speak. So just months after we sold the company, Danielle and I were already on stage at a founder conference in, within this community talking about our exit. And that immediately put us on the map. That's why my, my Twitter following was 400 at the point where we sold the business, like accumulated over 10 years, like painfully, excruciatingly getting to 400 followers. And within a couple months, it was a couple thousand people because I was I was just um, yeah, successful enough to get a spot at the conference and lucky enough for people to trust me to provide something meaningful. And that put my face there, that put Danielle's face there. We got to chat with all those, the big wigs of the industry, like Rob Walling and you know, like the, everybody who's, who's a big name in the indie hacker community. And, and that made the transition to Twitter easier because that just gives you some credibility from the start. Yeah. I, I hadn't planned to ask this, but this is coming up for me. I would love to understand your like money story because if I put myself in your shoes and I'm running a SaaS company that's generating 55-ish thousand dollars per month and now that's gone, life-changing exit, that's awesome. There's probably still a part of me that almost expects to generate that type of revenue on a monthly basis no matter what I do now. And writing books, building courses, not the fastest way to get there. Did you have any struggles with that either? Like, did you change the way you thought about revenue and generating revenue? And is that important to you? Do you care? I was raised in a family that didn't have much money. And I was also raised in what is, I, I guess you can call it former Eastern Germany, which meant that my my parents and my grandparents were raised in a socialist and Soviet-controlled area of Germany. So everything that we that they knew about how the economy worked ended in 1989 when Germany got reunified, right? I am German, by the way, just so that everybody knows I'm a German person. But that also meant that nobody really understood uh, how to navigate the capital markets. Nobody understood how, what investment really is because in, a, in the socialist system, rent was like 10 bucks a month. Everything was subsidized. Like the, the prices, my, my grandmother worked in the Ministry of Price. She set prices from the ministry for cars Crazy. in East Germany. It's the weirdest thing. Like you, you could not imagine that there was such a place. They would say, oh yeah, butter is two bucks today or something. It is it just, that. that's how it works. So everything that they knew about money was very, very much non the relevant for the new economy. I was born in 85. So they, they figured it out as I was growing up and what they learned, they were quickly learning that people was, would scam you. Like they, the, the banks would try, would try to sell you like super expensive mutual funds with like yearly uh, costs that exceed the gains you get from the fund, all that kind of stuff. Because, you know, if you have a group of people that are gullible and have no idea, might just as well cheat them if you're an institution like that. So everything that I learned as a kid about money is don't invest. They're just going to steal your money and make enough money for you to pay things, but don't talk about it either. So essentially, it's everything wrong about investment is what I learned in my life. Because the moment you start talking about your situation, other people can help you. The moment you invest, your money makes more money, right? 
obviously that that's what it is for me now that I've talked thought about it and talked to people about it but I was raised and I until I was like in my mid-20s didn't understand that it could be any different which meant I didn't have much money when we started the business and throughout building the business that also meant that the business itself was the only valuable asset that I really had like I made some good salary on my um, software engineering income and Danielle made some good money too, but we were living in Berlin, which has high rents and we were living an interesting lifestyle, which didn't leave much for saving. Again, was never taught how to do that either and uh, didn't really understand that I would have to. So when we then sold the business for, again, life-changing amount of money, everything changed. All of a sudden we had reached this plateau of financial independence where we didn't need to work to make an income anymore because with some even basic investments, and this is obviously not investment advice, but you know, ETFs in the S&P 500, if you put a large enough amount of money in there, this generates as much revenue in a year as you would make from having a regular job, right? So that is now covered. And that also meant in in um, if if you if I look at my my own needs to make revenue, that completely dropped off the picture for me. I was thinking, okay, I might want to, that create some more passive income sources and the books and the course, they are these things that I do consciously, but I'm not chasing income anymore. I don't need to. I don't want to. I don't want this to control my life. And I want to wake up whenever I want to wake up, which means I can't have a job. And I, I want to take days off when I want to take days off, which means I can't have a job. So all this kind of, you know, the, the necessity to make this amount of money again is over because we have a lump sum that is just making money for us. That doesn't mean I'm not looking into like, increasing wealth for the family but we do this differently we we are invested both danielle and i we are limited partners with the, the calm company fund run by tyler tringas right who sold to shirtshift capital all a big family he's investing or the fund is investing in bootstrap businesses which we know something about because we ran them i ran multiple <laughs> into the ground before we ran one that actually sold but you know <laughs> we ran them in many different capacities and both danielle and i know something about this so we are invested and also mentors in that fund just yesterday, I had a call with somebody who is in the fund about what their SaaS, SaaS businesses is going to be facing and kinds of challenges and the kinds of decisions that they're supposed to be making. I don't charge for these calls because I'm invested in these companies in some, some capacity. It's just wonderful because I can use my knowledge and help people who are just a couple of years behind me in, in that sense. At the same time, I'm trying to build what Daniel Vassallo would call a portfolio of small bets. Right? I wrote a couple books about my experience with uh, both Feedback Panda and building a SaaS, and then my experience with building an info product from inside a community, which is my the embedded entrepreneur. And then I kind of took that knowledge and turned that into a Twitter course. It's all a succession of stuff for me. And I'm just increasing the kind of opportunity surface of my life by putting little things out there. So money is not the central path, but money is still a part of it. I'm just trying to think about it as little as I can while generating, uh, just increasing this monthly passive income, you know, like level more and more over time. That's the idea. I, I talked to a lot of freelancers and money is such a big thing for them. And I try to tell them all the time, like, you know, it's often easier to attract projects when you aren't trying to get projects which is like a scary thing that you can't like just put on, especially if you are in a place where you're financially insecure. But it, it's true of clients. It's true of customers. When you're not focused on that as the thing and you make decisions for other reasons, usually for the betterment of the people you are serving, then good things happen. But it's so hard for people to start with that mindset. Yeah, you have the you always have the problem that instant gratification is, uh, is such a strong motivating factor, right? I want to do the thing and I want to do it now, and I would put will put all my efforts into trying to get to this as fast as I can, and obviously that is short term thinking. That's like you know like there's this book called um, Finite and Infinite Games. Right? And then there's a newer book by Simon Sinek just called The Infinite Game, where he puts this into a more popularized way of uh, expressing. <laughs> but the idea is really there's two kinds of things you can do. You can play a finite game with known players and you know the win conditions. You know that if there's a winner, there's a loser. And that's kind of what a, what a soccer match or like a tennis match would be, right? There's strict rules. You know exactly who's playing. And after 90 minutes or after six uh, sets or something, the thing is over. 
And those things you optimize for by doing short-term wins, right? You play as hard as you can to defeat your opponent to get to that trophy. And then on the other side, there's infinite games, like the game of love or the game of life or the game of politics or the, the game of um, economics. You cannot win politics just as much as you can't win economics. You can win an election and you can win a merger or you can win a client, but you can't win money. Right, like as like these these are just concepts where the idea of the infinite game is you win it by keeping playing the game. It's politics is probably one of the best examples. The people who are good at politics, politicians, you may like them or not, doesn't really matter. They don't. They, they win when they keep being politicians in power. Right, power is one of those games. So in a, in a sense, politics probably is the worst example for an infinite game because you have these. Um, there's a very distinction between the people who actually gain from it and who don't. But if you look at our community, indie hackers, people building businesses, business is one of those infinite games. You can't win business, and you do much better by keeping running businesses and helping other people's building their own businesses and building connections and partnerships than by trying to outprice the competitor or by ruining somebody else's business, right? It's, in a, it's a win-win situation that you're looking into. And that's what infinite games are about. And most of the people listening to this show, they're creators, they're content creators, which yes. is even more of an infinite game. That's just something that, you know, you, you write a great blog post that does really well. Awesome. That's now attracting more people to your work, but you can't stop writing because now those people want to learn from you. They want to hear from you. It's like the ultimate. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great, game. great accountability thing as well. If people, if, if people expect something from you, it makes you provide that uh, more reliably. And that, that's kind of why I have a newsletter and a podcast. It's, it's not that I always wanted to have a podcast. I just figured out after I started writing and I started with a blog, right? I, I have a blog called The Bootstrap Founder because I was a Bootstrap Founder and I thought, mm -hmm, name seems to fit. And I, I started writing in like November 2019 and a couple of people liked it. And I figured out, hmm, if I really want to keep writing this every week, I better find a way to stay accountable. So I put out a newsletter and, and the first person that subscribed was like, okay, I guess I have to show up next Friday. Doesn't matter if it's just one person that wants to read what I'm saying. They put in their email. They trust me enough to give me their private information. Now I need to commit. Just this week, I think at episode 123, every single week. And it keeps me going because I know there's people who expect something of me. And in a way, that is the long-term win. The win is that every week, there's a couple dozen more people that subscribe to my newsletter. And every week, there's a couple more people that listen to my podcast, that find me on Twitter, that find my work. They may look at it, they may purchase it, they may not, doesn't matter to me, because I know eventually either they, they will in the future or they will tell somebody else about me and they will get one of my books. It doesn't matter. I don't need their win right now. I, all I want to do is to, to gather as many people that I want to be communicating with around me and give them the opportunity to find something valuable in the things that I already provide for free so that eventually there's reciprocity that th they can't help. Right. And in, uh, in my course, I, I have a little slide called eventual Re reciprocity, which is this kind of this human urge to, to get even. And if somebody gives you so much stuff for free at some point in your life, you can't help but try to give back because it just feels wrong if you're not a psychopath to not give back. Right. If somebody gives me something for free every single day, eventually I'm going to try to, I don't know, mow their lawn or something because I really want to give back. And it's the same for the creator economy. The more you put out there for free, the more you share, the more you help people and increase this surface of opportunity around you by people noticing, oh, this person is super helpful, the more they will eventually feel compelled to help you back. And that can be monetary. That can be by giving you a great opportunity, giving you potentially a great gig as a freelancer, a great job that you can start, or a great partnership with somebody else, a shout out on somebody's Twitter feed that has millions of followers, whatever it is. It's not just about money. It's about exposure. It's about being seen, about being noticed, about being helped, being seen as a helpful person. That makes all the difference. But the problem is, and that's, that's kind of pulling it back to what you said initially, that is deferred gratification. That takes a long time. It can take days if you're lucky. It can take weeks or months if you're neutrally lucky. And it can take years if you're not lucky. But it will eventually happen. Just the chances are non-zero. It just might take a pretty long time. And for you to be able to sustain your life throughout this time, you need to have a way to, to generate money, right? And that for most freelancers means they have to do jobs they don't want to do, or they have to look for clients even though they would rather have clients come in. I think it's, it's a very unique personal situation, but just having the mindset of, if I put stuff out for free, eventually things will come back to me. That is all you need to start. When we come back, 
Arvid blows my mind with his different approach to growing on Twitter and the differences he's seen in selling courses versus selling books. Right after this. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. If you work with clients and you want to grow your top line revenue without growing a big payroll at the same time, then consider attending the Solopreneur Summit, a VIP event hosted by my friend Ken Yarmish. Ken has personally closed over $50 million in his career as a solopreneur, all in professional services. I've learned a lot from Ken, and he's worked with some of the biggest names today. People like Matt Barker, Nasheen Chen, Laura Acosta, and Jake Ward trust Ken to get clearer offers and scale their business with systems. Now, Ken is running a two-day in-person summit on May 9th and 10th to help you build systems across marketing, sales, and client delivery. So now you too can grow without hiring. This will be a workshop setting. It's the anti-loud obnoxious conference with no more than 50 people who will go deep with Ken and other experts that he's brought in to solve actual problems in your business. Ken and his invited experts will show you their proven systems across personal branding, driving inbound leads, social selling, crafting scalable offers, using AI to automate client delivery, and more. Stop guessing and start learning from those who are three to five steps ahead of you. Get actionable tactics and proven systems to accelerate your pipeline, close more deals, and get out of client delivery hell. Head to trs.club summit to learn more and register for the Solopreneur Summit today. At that website, you'll see some of the other experts that are coming in that will allow you to go behind the scenes and look at their actual businesses. Again, that URL is trs.club summit. One last time, that's trs.club slash summit. Let me tell you about one of my favorite podcasts that I've been listening to for years. It's called The $100 MBA Show. And wherever you are on your business journey, The $100 MBA Show has lessons that can help you take the next step forward. The $100 MBA Show is a best of Apple Podcasts winner, literally one of the top Apple podcasts of all time. And it's hosted by my friend and former guest, Omar Zenholm. Omar is a business school dropout turned successful entrepreneur, and he shares real-world lessons on starting, growing, and scaling your business. You may even know his software product, Webinar Ninja. What I love about The $100 MBA Show is that these are well-produced, bite-sized episodes on everything from creating a product, connecting with your market, sales, building a team, and more. This show is legit. It does over 2 million downloads every month. Whether you're a small-time solopreneur or scaling your startup to investor level, there's valuable real-world advice for you in the $100 MBA's archive of thousands of episodes with new episodes three days a week. If that sounds interesting to you, and it should, just search for $100 MBA show wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Earlier in the conversation, Arvid mentioned that before his talk at MicroConf Europe, he had spent 10 years on Twitter building a following of about 400 people. At the time of this interview, Arvid was over 50,000 followers, so I asked him to help fill that gap between that event in 2021 and today so that we could understand when and how that growth actually happened. 
Well, funny enough, if you look at my Twitter growth, it is a very, very sustained line. Like it, there's no spikes in there. It, it just slowly creeps up. And I, I remember that like Feedback Panda was the same way. We we didn't have this gigantic spike of new customers. We just had a couple of customers and then two customers a day turned into three customers a day and then three turned into four and that turned into five. My Twitter growth is the exact same thing. In the beginning, I had like one or two new followers a day and then there was five and then there was 10 and now I'm somewhere between 180 to 240 every day. And I think one thing that really helps is to offer a product or be someone who people want to talk to their peers about. Like the, the kind of being referable, right? It's kind of uh, being shareable, both as a product that you create or as a personality that you are, that makes a whole, whole lot of difference. Like if you're, if you're an aggressive person on Twitter that is always sarcastic and always like beating down on people for their ideas that you don't believe are right, People will not want to share you. They don't want to talk about you. They might want to follow you because they love to see the, the accidents happen, but they won't want to affiliate themselves with you. But if you're, and, and that is obviously my self-perception, if you're, if you're a kind and helpful person, and I want to be that, and I try to be that every day, well, then people want to associate with you because they also want to be kind and helpful. Who doesn't want to be kind and helpful in a community that is essentially the most supportive and kind community that I've ever seen anywhere? Which is like the, the indie founder, indie hacker community, the creator economy community. Every, everyone around in, in these two communities and the intersecting parts of it is just so helpful to each other. And if you if you want to be part of that community, you look at the you look for the people who are like this and I try to be like this. So I attract people. And if you attract 10 people, Five of them might tell their friends. If you attract 20 people, 10 of them might tell their friends. So it's all a numbers game and it's it's the cum cumulative effect, right? It's a compound effect of this that caused this these 50,000 followers to happen. I still cannot believe this, honestly. Like, I, I really have, I have no idea how this happened. But I just show up on Twitter every day. I try to celebrate as many other people as I can instead of just talking about my own stuff. I, I think my, my retweet to tweet ratio is somewhere around the 80-20. Like I, I retweet a lot compared to what I actually talk, talk about my own stuff because I feel with a growing audience, everything I do to highlight somebody else can make their life so much better. Right? If, if, uh, if somebody just starts their project and now they're exposed to 50,000 people, that can make the whole difference for the start of the journey. Or they have a question and I expose them to 50,000 different answers. You know, they can learn something from that. So, so I'm kind of using my leverage as somebody with a huge or somewhat large audience. I don't know. I, uh, I think I'm still around the, the 250,000 position in terms of people's audience size on Twitter. Like Social Blade, the website ranks you for that. And I still mm. have a B minus with my audience. It's unfortunate, <laughs> but I don't know. I haven't checked in the last couple of days. Maybe a B by this point, but you know, like I, there's still 250,000 people that have larger audiences than I on Twitter, but I, I still believe 50,000 people is a lot, particularly since they're all founders. So you're all so exposing anything to a gigantic community of founders. And, and that can, that makes a whole difference. And that's what I do all day. Honestly, I, I just spend so much time on Twitter trying to find cool things to share with everybody else so that the people who share it get something out of it. Most of the time when I talk to people who are doing really well on Twitter, I'm like, what's working? And they pull out a bullhorn and they say, threads, write threads all day. All you do is write threads. If I said, Arvid, you have one hour a day that you can spend on Twitter and use your strategy. How would you divvy up that hour in how you're spending it? So I would write zero threads, probably. Um, <laughs> honestly, I, I, I'm not a thread fan because I... I, to me, Twitter is is about engagement. Like one of the things that I tell everybody who asks me about a good strategy to build a Twitter audience is to completely forget writing tweets, standalone tweets, and to focus 100% on engaging with other people where they're already having a conversation. Because I, I still enjoy this to this day. I, I see somebody having a chat with somebody else and they exchange something, they discuss something and I go in there and give my opinion or I pull in another expert that I know can help here or I find a resource and I put it in there in an ongoing conversation. I don't start a new conversation. I go to where it's already happening. And if you don't have a following, right? If you, if you only have like 20 or 30 followers when you start out on Twitter, like if you write a, a tweet, 
it's only 20 or 30 people are going to see it. And even then, like with Twitter's algorithm, only like 10% of those people will see it anyway on their streams because there's so much other things that are trying to compete for their attention from people with a larger following that has more engagement. So when you write something with only 30 followers, three people might see it. And out of these three people, how many do you think was going to like fit the perfect engagement profile? Probably zero. So nobody will like it. Nobody will engage with it. But if you go to somebody else's tweets, uh, an influencer in the community that you like, that you admire, somebody who you want to be like, they have a couple thousand followers, maybe a couple dozen of thousand followers, and they tweet about something. And you join that conversation where not only do you get to potentially engage with this follower you like, but with that gigantic audience of pre-selected people that are exactly like you. Like, why would you choose to tweet into the void for your three people that's going to be reading it if there's an audience of tens of thousands of people that are so much more like the people that you actually want to have connect with you right there waiting for somebody to engage with them? So that's what I would spend my hour on. I would go into as many interesting conversations as possible that I have something meaningful to contribute to, not just to be a reply guy. That kind of sucks. But, you know, like anything where I think I have something meaningful and valuable to add, and then I just engage. And if you do this for a long time, if you do this enough, one day, uh, one hour a day for like a couple weeks, you will amass a, a critical number of people following you that you can now start starting these conversations. You can now be the person giving their opinion for other people to engage with. But that is later talk. The beginning is 100% engagement. Don't look at threats. Don't look at polls. Don't look at spaces. Don't look at nothing but going into people's conversations and giving them something that attracts other people to you. It, I call this the audience audition. You go there and you audition in front of somebody else's audience because you're somebody that they might also want to follow. You don't pluck your product. You don't talk about yourself. You give them something helpful so they think, oh, this person is helpful. I want to follow them because they might be useful to me. So awesome. And that's that means a lot coming from somebody that does have a following of 50,000 people to say, I still am doing these audience auditions rather than starting my own conversations. I'm finding other conversations. I want to transition a little bit into some of the products that you've created now. You've written and published, self-published two books, Zero to Sold and The Embedded Entrepreneur. And just this last week, as of recording this, you released, I think, your first course, mm -hmm. the, the Twitter course. Yeah. Okay. So now, having released those three products as... Teacher Arvid, how would you decide whether or not you do a book versus a course for a future idea that you want to teach somebody? Hmm. You know what? That that is actually super hard to answer because like the, this course is my experimentation with the new format. Because books, I, I know books because I'm a, an avid reader. I, I loved reading ever since I was a kid. Always always read because I yeah I'm a um, an only child, so I didn't have any people to spend my time with. I chose books. And I read a lot during my time as a software engineer, which really helped me get to a point where I understood how to build a business from that, right? I read books like The 4-Hour Workweek and Built to Sell and The E-Myth, like all these foundational books for founders or Rob Walling's Starts Small, Stay Small, like, you know, the books from our community. So I know what books are and I know how books work. And uh, as a writer, I never considered myself to be a writer until I started writing. But as people noticed my writing and kind of resonated with it, at some point I turned all my writing a couple months into writing into like a, a guide, a free guide. And then people told me, hey, I would pay for this. And I thought, oh, maybe I should write a book. And then I kind of expanded <laughs> that into Sold. zero. To, so honestly, I, I, I and, and the, you know what the wonderful thing is? The person that I can attribute this to is Andrew Gazdecki, the, the founder of Micro Acquire, which is now doing such an amazing job of giving people in our community the uh, option to be acquired with their little SaaS businesses, little or not so little, right? They're, they're, it's, it's all kinds of businesses. And Andrew, I, I recently found this for my course too. It's in the course. He was one of the people that commented on my my launch thread for the, the free guide that I put out there, said, hey, I would pre-order this if there was a book. And this is such an empowering move by an established founder. Like you see somebody making content that is kind of cool, but I at that time didn't know that I was a writer. I was just a blogger. And, and again, just is not, is not mean qualitatively. It's just, I felt I was not a, a, a book author, right? And Andrew's like, oh yeah, I'd, I'd buy that book. And that got me thinking. Like, okay, if people tell me they would buy this as a book, maybe I should consider writing a book. And then I just, uh, you know, spent the time and, and fleshed it out into an actual book, which is now 500 pages. And um, you can do probably like, uh, you could lift with that. You could do... Uh, 
weight exercises with that book. It's a, it's a pretty <laughs> pretty sizable book. But yeah, Zero to Sold is that book. Like my my story of building Feedback Panda, everything I learned about building a SaaS is in that book because I first started on my blog and then I everything I knew I put into writing. For me, that the process of writing is very clarifying. If you put me in front of a camera and want me to talk, I'm all over the place. And you probably noticed this in this conversation. I, I pull in things from all over because my memory is just very, you know, squirrel, squirrel brain is, I think, what they call it. But in writing, you have to funnel it into something that is actually connected with each other. And writing, rewriting, editing, that really helps me put my thoughts into order. So I wrote that book. Then I wrote another book on the process of embedding yourself in a community and building a business from there, Twitter being that community, because that's my experience. And I, I wrote that book in public, too, in my Twitter community, because I wanted to show the learnings of the book in the book. And that was very, very meta. That's the Embedded Entrepreneur. That worked super well. I had like 500 beta readers. It was really cool. What a great experience. But after I was done with that, I was like, huh, I guess I write another book now. And then I, I started thinking about writing a book about building in public. And in gathering this, the resources I needed for that, I thought this seems to be such an actionable, actionable topic, such a thing that reading about is probably fine, but seeing it, having somebody actually explain it to you might be easier. And then I saw uh, people around me making courses like, yeah, you have Kavan Chung, who's who's also like a big building public person, and he has a little course going. And you have KP, and he's working with ODNC, and that's a, a, a on deck, right? They 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 were they have the No Code Fellowship that he worked with, and on deck, and generally has a lot of interesting cohort based courses. So I was kind of pulled into the course world through the building in public movement, and then I thought, hey, I have an iPhone. And I have some some money to invest into good equipment, into good lights or something. So why don't I make a course? And and the great thing about making a course was there's a thing called a teleprompter. And for a writer, that is wonderful because I wrote out the script for my course, which is four and a half hours long, is 42,000 words of a script and I put that on my other iPhone. And I get, it's, it's like one of these fancy iPhone, iPhone teleprompters, but one is the camera and one is the, the little teleprompter source. And I just narrated my own script into my camera for four and a half hours and ended up with a course in front of a green screen with some good sound equipment and good lighting that Danielle helped me with because she has an eye for detail. Well, I do not. That, that was just really how that course happened. Just from, I want to write a book about building in public to... Eh, I, I guess I better talk to people about it too. Oh, I have a spot in our unfinished basement where I can put up a green screen. And that's the all that's all that is. It's an experiment on changing the medium into something that is more compatible with the people that are consuming it. I, I know that people love to read and the, you could probably read the book faster, the 42,000 words, than I narrated to you. But being able to give examples, showing tweets and showing graphs and all that stuff and explaining them in detail, so much easier in a course. So now I want to answer your actual question. I probably would go for another course because I just enjoy it more than writing a book because it is writing a book plus the actual instructional part. I talk about it in the course as well. Having a human person, like a face and a voice to connect with is also something that is much stronger for your brand. Like nobody who went through this course for four and a half hours is ever going to forget my face for good or for bad. You know, like if you read a book, you know, if you don't know the voice of the author, you might know their name or something, but you don't connect with them on a personal level. But you, if you see a face and I make a really lame joke or something like that, never going to leave you. And for retention's sake, that's kind of good. From a business perspective, it's also interesting too, right? But yeah, that's that. I would always go with the course because I can always turn the course into a book in retrospect. I have my script right here. I could just change it up, put a couple pictures in a, in a book and then send it out to my self-publishing KDP account and then it would be a book. People also tend to value courses more highly, even though they often require less work to produce. So like odd. you charged thirty-five to fifty dollars for the course yeah. and a book. Like if you charge more than twenty dollars for a book, people are like, ah. It's so odd to have this kind of traditional understanding of what books are. Like the amount of money I had to spend to get the book, the first book and the second book, into the shape that people would accept it, which is you need to 
well-designed cover. You need a proofreader. You need an editor. You need like uh, maybe a, a, some a, t a person that, that does the whole layouting and everything, right? I, I did all of most of these things by myself or crowdsourcing it or using tools. But I, I think even for the audiobook, I turned both of them into audiobooks. I paid like $3,000, $5,000 to have somebody narrate that book as an audiobook. Meanwhile, I was sitting like two meters from where I'm sitting right now, narrating my course into my own my camera phone, right? Uh, having a tiny little mic, doing barely any editing because I had a script and I'm uh, after 120 episodes of a podcast where I read from a script, I'm pretty good at reading from a script. So there was, I, I don't, I think I spent half an hour actually editing those, those, um, those five hours or four and a half hours of, of uh, audio and stuff. It was just so much easier. And my, my editing cost, I think I did a, I, I built this in public too, right? I shared all the, from the start, like what I was doing, all the research material and my, my problems, my thoughts, my decisions, everything is, is out there on Twitter. I did a little list of how much money I spent actually creating this course and minus the time that I spent on it because I have a hard time quantifying how much that is actually worth, the actual tooling and the the the, uh, the machinery I needed to buy, the lights and all that stuff, that went $2,500. That was really it. And that is uh, the software that I use, like Adobe Creative Suite and all that stuff, all these things are in there. So the books cost me like eight or 9000 to make. And I... Wild. You know, I, I still sold way more than that at this point, but the course cost me two and a half. And I think on my first day of launching the course, what was it like like seven, six and a half, like six point five thousand dollars is what I made on the first day of launching the course. So I had my initial cost minus my own labor, which is probably another four or five. I had that in on the first day. And now that the first week is over, I think we are now, as we're recording this, ten days into sales for uh, find your following. I think I'm around ten or eleven thousand dollars US in sales. So this has been pretty solid, I can tell you that. And uh, as a passive income generating thing, I, I'm looking forward to seeing the next couple months of that and years too, because I'm also going into affiliate marketing. First time I'm ever doing this, like having people that I know and trust affiliates uh, be affiliates for my course. And I'm going to share stuff on Twitter, like about the ongoing sales and just parts of the course to get people interested. It's just, it's just exciting. But I, I also completely agree. People value video based stuff much more than books for some reason, even though books require much more work and are super hard to change too. Like you can't change yeah. somebody's book on the shelf, but nope. you can always upload a new file to something. It's, it's, it's weird. I think it's just the, the decades, if not millennia of people having books right? Or centuries, I guess, of people uh, interacting with books that set these kind of rigid expectations, while with digital content, everything is still kind of in flux. Like, the quality, how things are structured, it feels like everybody's doing their own thing. I, I had no idea what I was doing, and people tell me it's a really good course, you know? <laughs> I, I, it's, it's like, okay, thank you very much. I guess I'm not too wrong. That's all I'm trying to be is to be not as wrong as, as possible, but a little bit less wrong than that in, in doing this. But people tell me the course is well-structured. And I guess that is attributable to me writing it out in, in the first place, doing an editing pass, putting slides in with the writing. Like just, I, I spent 21 days writing, one day recording, and three days editing. That's how that course happened. So that's the distribution of, of effort that went into this. And, and that is super enjoyable to me because if that is what I can do in a month, cool. I'm going to do that next month then with another topic. It's just, yeah, it's just super enjoyable. Something you did with that course that I've never quite seen before, and I'm curious to see 10 days in how you're feeling about this. You put it on four different platforms. Yeah. You have it on Podia to sell it on your own domain. You have yeah. it on Gumroad. You have it on Udemy and you have it on Skillshare. Mm -hmm. How's that experiment playing out? What I've learned is that some people get very confused by this. The fact that there's four different choices, which um, I, I had to change my landing page. I had two offers in the beginning, right? If you, if you go to the landing page for Find Your Following, you will, you would have seen two big buttons. One is buy this on Gumroad. The other one was buy this on Podia. And then a little text-based link under there also available on Udemy and Skillshare. I have changed this since to buy this on Gumroad as being the only button and also available in Podia, Skillshare, and Udemy. And the more platforms I will add it to in the future, for some reason, they will also be in that little list of text. People are confused by choice because they expect products to have one place where you get them. But with a course, and in particular, a course about a topic like Twitter, I guess 
empathetic Twitter, like being a kind and authentic person on Twitter. That's the whole point of the course. That is a very broad topic in a sense. And that also has appealed to many different people. And many different people have many different preferences. And that's the whole reason why it's available on different platforms. I know people from the indie hacker community, they love their downloadable video files. So it's on Gumroad for that reason. Also, I'm a fan of Gumroad. Gumroad has been really helpful for all my other sales. So I want to stick with that. They have a great coupon infrastructure. They have a great control about... um, the email lists and stuff that you, you you keep the people that subscribe. It's it's wonderful. The, um, the good integrations and whatnot. I'm also not sponsored for that. I should be, but I'm not. That's why it's on Gumroad. It's on Podia because I always wanted to try Podia. Honestly, just as my own decision, I like this platform. It's really cool. It only has a monthly fee, but people can subscribe to the course that they can watch it in really nice steps and you can add little documents and stuff. It's, it's a great platform. And then I put it on Udemy and Skillshare because I want reach. Like reach is really important for a product that I consider to be a good product. Like all my products, I um I maybe in a self-aggrandizing way, I think they're good products, but you know, people tell me they're nice, so I believe them. I want this to be available to as many people as possible, which is why it's on Udemy. I don't have much control of a price on Udemy, unfortunately, because Udemy is somewhat um, almost predatory in terms of how they price things just for their own reasons. But I still want it to be there to be reachable. And it's on Skillshare because I heard people tell me Skillshare is a nice platform for professionals to learn from. And honestly, all experimental. Like Skillshare Udemy is just me trying to figure out how Udemy and Skillshare works in terms of compensation and reach and how, how marketing works, affiliates work on that platform. I put this on four different platforms because I know that people have different um, priorities and different preferences. I want to talk about one thing that I will do tomorrow. In, uh, and tomorrow, whenever this airs, is probably already over. I, <laughs> yes. I decided that this is not enough in terms of making the course available to many people. Because I know I have a large audience in, in countries that have uh, th- whose currency is pretty much undervalued against the dollar, right? I, I charge in US dollars because that is where most of the indie hacker community is originating. You would think, but it's really not. There's a lot of Indians, people from India, people from uh, Southeast Asia, people from Australia, from Europe, all over the place. And every country has a differently valued currency, but I still only charge in US dollars. So what I will turn on just a couple hours from recording this, actually, is purchasing power parity pricing. So I will price all my courses on all platforms that support it with a with a discount towards the currency that people purchase the course in. So if you're from India, I think it's somewhere 40-50% off. If you're from, uh, I, I don't know, Slovenia, it's probably 20% off, that kind of stuff. If you're from the States, it's 0% off because that's the dollar. If you're from Canada, it's like 10% off. I don't really know. Um, uh, Parity Bar, it's a, it's a program that I put on my landing page, will do this for me. Platforms that currently support this are Gumroad and Podia because I can put coupons there and uh, do this. Udemy does not, Skillshare does not allow me to do this, unfortunately. So if, if people want to be receive the benefits of purchasing parity pricing, which is a mouthful, they can go to Gumroad and to Podia for this. I want to do this because I feel I owe this to my audience, which is a global audience, to be cognizant of that not everybody is making a US salary and that I'm pricing this out of reach for whole economies if I keep the price at 50 bucks US. So that's my experiment. That's also what I'm writing about this week. It's kind of a going through my concerns that I had about it. And I'm launching this at the same time. And, and that will hopefully make this much more available to people from, from other countries and then create more buzz around the course as being one of the few that is actually available to them in those countries. Amazing. Uh, goes back to your value of empowerment. Yeah, really. That, because I, it, it, when you look at everything that you do through a core value like this, you can't help but actually do it because you you don't have any arguments against it. Like my, my initial arguments against it were like, oh, I'm going to make less money maybe if people pay less money for it. And I was like, yeah, sure. But there's also so much more reach and I can help so much more people. And isn't that worth it? Isn't, isn't that worth more than a couple more dollars a month? And people might abuse it. They might act like they're from a different country. But yeah, sure. But people who do this, are these the people I want to serve anyway? Like, would they even pay the full price for this if they if they didn't get to cheat? Like, all these arguments you can make against this if you look at it through the lens of a core value, empowerment or enabling people to solve their own problems or, you know, whatever it is, lifting people up. 
you can't help but actually commit to this stuff, which really helps. And it's also part of the course, finding this core value. It's one of the first things that you do in the Twitter course is to figure out what you are about so you can use it in everything you do. Because I found that is super, super instructive for me. Once I figured out that I want to empower people, that I want to engage with people as much as I can, I want to connect people, well, makes makes it very easy to choose between uh, retweeting somebody's tweet or like celebrating my own success. Always going to go for somebody else because that is what empowerment is about. Arva's advice for focusing on contributing to existing conversations on Twitter has been rattling around my brain since this interview. It's so counter to all the other advice we've heard on this show. Not that it makes the other advice of writing threads wrong, but it's so refreshing to hear a different strategy for the same goal. If you want to learn more about Arvid, you can visit his website at thebootstrappedfounder.com or at Arvid Call on Twitter. And if you want to take his Find Your Following course for Twitter, listeners of the show can save 10%. Links to that and everything mentioned are in the show notes. Thanks to Arvid for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm trying to hit a couple milestones there, so please take a minute to do so. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Universe.